Earth podcast with your host, Jake Weaver, engineered by Cedric Swan. Hey, everybody, we are back with another episode of Midnight on Earth. I'm your host, Jake Weaver, and we're here to bring you more knowledge, more light, more love. We are back with the lecture episode this week. We had a fantastic guest last week talking about breath work and what you can activate just by breathing. It was so cool. But this week we're doing a lecture episode. And because there's no rules on this show, we can just do whatever we want at any time, really. We are going to do another Manly P. Hall lecture. Why? Another one we just did one three months ago. I know, but the lectures are so good and there's no one like Manly P. Hall when it comes to lecturing. He's the Jerry Garcia of lecturing. (laughs) Or maybe Jerry Garcia is the Manly P. Hall of psychedelic cosmic guitar playing. Either way, he's a legend. He's unique, and there's no one else like him. There hasn't been since. His lectures are so jam-packed with information. So because we make our own rules here on this show, We are tackling another Manly P. Hall lecture. I'm actually really excited about this one. This one's going to be really good. And as usual, with me on my lecture episodes and beyond the news and occasionally tribute episodes, Bryn Anderson of Vital Force Herbs. Hello, Bryn. Hello, Jake. We're back With another Manly P. Hall lecture, what did you think about what I said about Manly P. Hall? He is very unique. Do you know anybody like him? Have you learned the things that you've learned from Manly from anyone else? No. I don't know anyone else like Manly P. Hall or any lectures that quite tackle things the way he does. Um, I would say I've learned some things that Manly P. Hall talks about or was introduced to them before I heard him, but he made those subjects or ideas more clear or more, or took them to another level. So definitely always learning from Manly P. Hall and excited to be here this morning. Sweet. Yes. The density of information. He's not just an old soul. He's an ancient soul. I, I don't know how you qualify that, but uh, He seems to be even older than an old soul. So it's going to be an incredible episode. And thankfully, Bryn is here with us. We're going to tackle that, as Bryn said, (laughs) just a second. But first, I need you to do something for me. Go to patreon.com slash midnight on earth. Check out our Patreon page. There's different tiers of support. Pick a tier of support that you're interested in adding to your life. It helps me. It helps me get this information out there to more people to aggregate the people, the lectures, the news, all the things that we cover on this podcast 
You signing up to Patreon helps me expand and get that out there more. If you love this show, which I know you do, as much as I do, as much as Bryn does, I think she's grown to love it being here so many times. Check out the Patreon page, patreon.com slash midnight on earth. And when you're done with that, follow me on Instagram at midnight underscore on underscore earth. That is the address. You can follow me there. Spotify, Apple podcasts, Google podcasts, wherever you go to get your podcasts, click that button that connects us. So you know exactly what is going on. You get a notification to your device or whatever. (laughs) Your augmented reality, Apple glasses or whatever the VR lenses are called. I can't even remember right now, but Hey, Maybe you can get a three-dimensional notification about this podcast when you sign up, wherever you sign up. And of course, tell a friend, tell someone that you know that loves these type of podcasts. You know them, they're your friends, they're your family, they're your coworkers, they're your neighbors, whatever. People in your church or other religious group, temple, synagogue. Bring them here. You know them. Midnightonearth.com. Okay. So, shout out out of the way. I have another shout out. Yes. But I do want to take a second, if you're a longtime listener, to say a shout out. Another shout out. We did the social media shout out. But now we're going to say a prayer shout out, a love and light shout out to Howard Hitt of Blue Cobra CBD. They were a longtime sponsor of this podcast, and Howard is a very good friend of mine. He's 77 years old, and he's going through some very extreme health challenges. In fact, well, a lot of things could happen. I don't want to speculate. However, I did go visit him in the hospital, and... He's in good spirits mentally, but physically it's another story. He did have a near-death experience, which he told me about, where he saw the light in the tunnel and he heard the voices. And He said it was very sweet and nice and the voices were powerful and comforting and wanting him to go to that other place and he wanted to go there and he said that nothing on earth mattered. Everything that was in the third dimension was almost meaningless in a way as you transition into that next dimension. So he had that happen to him. He told me about that. So we're going to send a prayer out. Let's just take one second, five seconds, something like that. And just send some healing, loving lights to Howard Hicks of blue Cobra CBD, who invented something so special and so magical and it's saved people's lives. I'll just say that. So let's just take five seconds or so. Howard hit. Here we go. Okay. Hopefully he's feeling that from all of you around the world. He's a great guy. I wish his company would have exploded and every person could have the healing benefits of blue Cobra CBD, but 
It didn't exactly happen that way. So. <laughs> Howard hit people. He's out there still alive in this dimension, but you know, he may choose to leave at some point. Yes. Prayers and love to Howard and his wife, Judy. Okay. Definitely. And now let's talk about Manly P. Hall. Let's read his bio. Obviously, most of you know who he is if you're a listener of this show because we've covered him so many times because his lectures are so good. So let's just read his bio. Here we go. Manly P. Hall, born 1901, graduated 1990, founded the Philosophical Research Society in 1934 a nonprofit organization dedicated to the dissemination of useful knowledge in the fields of philosophy, comparative religion, and psychology. In his long career spanning more than 70 years of dynamic public activity, Mr. Hall delivered over 8,000 lectures in the United States and abroad, authored over 150 books and essays, and wrote countless magazine articles. Many of Mr. Hall's lectures have been transcribed and are available as pamphlets. Others were taped live. And the audio recordings are available. They're out there, people. MP3s, all of the above. He is perhaps best known for his 1928 classic, The Secret Teachings of All Ages an encyclopedia of the world's wisdom traditions and symbolic disciplines. Today, younger generations are rediscovering the works and words of Manly Hall, finding that the material he put forth so many years ago is still relevant and useful today. Mr. Hall's hope for humanity was to learn from the greatest minds of all times so that we may solve current problems both in society and in the individual today. Okay, Manly P. Hall. So this lecture is called Magic in the Astral Dimension. So you already know it's going to be good. But the audio quality isn't the best. But that's okay because the information is very powerful and it's worth it to kind of fight the fidelity issue. So this is why we preserve these lectures on the Midnight on Earth podcast because the information is so timeless and necessary and meaningful that we just need to listen to it. That's why we cover these Manly P. Hall lectures so much. There's no one else like him, so... I'm not sure when this lecture was recorded. Unfortunately, there's no dates on this one. But it sounds like it was kind of in his later years. I'm going to take a guess and say 70s, late 70s, early 80s. So, Brain, what do you think? Are you ready for another Manly P. Hall lecture, Magic in the Astral Dimension? What do you think? I'm ready. Actually, magic and the astral dimension is exactly what I want to hear from Manly P. Hall right now. So I love the way that he has such a density and in-depth knowledge of, of these subjects. So let's do it. Okay. So here we go, people. Again, if you have not listened to a lecture episode with us before, 
Bryn and I are taking notes, listening with you. So it's me and Bryn and you and Manly and his audience of the time. And after the lecture is over, then we talk about what we've learned, the notes, we go over them, and we reconvene. It's a recap. So stick it out with us all the way to the end. And here we go. Magic and the astral dimension with Manly P. Hall. Uh, the subject for the morning has been an object of considerable controversy. And uh, back in the old medieval periods, there were very elaborate works dealing with magic. Uh, magic uh, sometimes uncertain, often unsavory in those days. It's dark circles at the crossroads, haunts, various forms of black magic. All these finally gathered together under the general term of the astral light. The word itself, of course, is a perfectly innocent word. It really means, essentially, the effects of the stars. The, the convergence of star energies upon the atmosphere of the earth. We have a feeling of what they do when they affect us uh, by astrology and by weather and by numerous meteorological reports. We are informed, at least in part, of starry influences. But the effect of these influences upon the Earth's subtle atmospheres became the basis of an elaborate structure in magical thinking. First of all, we have to follow the general pattern of antiquity in the discussion of the planet itself. We think of the planet Earth as merely as a sun of balls surrounded by some atmosphere and floating in a great sea of space. This is not the way the ancients looked at it. They considered the planet to be based upon the same general pattern as the human being himself. Man has a physical body and he has invisible principles operating through it. To the ancients, the earth had invisible principles. The earth was not merely a lump. The earth was an organized structure, a structure that was capable of supporting life and passing through innumerable vicissitudes and changes of itself. There was not only a visible earth, but an invisible one. There was not only a physical earth, but there was a superphysical one. And the invisible structures of the earth, like the aura of the human body, were energy fields. And these energy fields were involved in the evolution of everything that exists in nature. All the kingdoms of life, are nourished by the energies from appropriate levels of the energy fields. A large part of magnetic healing is a result of energies being directed, either by human consciousness or by various medicinal substances which carry these energies. Therefore, the whole planet is a vast organism, a tremendous vital dynamic structure of which we in our daily living see only the outside and the surface. Beneath the surface is not just simply vast strata of rocks and volcanic forces. The invisible part of the earth is a tremendous being, or as the ancients put it, the earth is alive. The earth is a living thing. 
It is not simply a, a body or an object. Everything that exists in some way or other is alive. There is no death in space, but constant transformation. So the earth itself was a being. And in the mythology of the ancients, they had appropriate deities to symbolize. Not only the earth, but all of the separate parts of the earth's structure. The earth has its own mind, its own emotions, its own vitality. It not only is able to support life, but it is able to direct life. It not only brings us all the different forms of energy and life which we know in daily living, but it is behind this a conscious, rational power. Now, uh, most people today, of course, don't believe this. Uh, science has taken the attitude that man had the mind and the rest of nature was in existence only for man to tamper with. But this is not the way antiquity viewed it. Uh, the uh, ancients were convinced that there was a tremendous vital power behind the physical form. Researches on the magnetic field of the human being have justified the realization that man also is both visible and invisible. The invisible part of man is sidereal. It is an energy field. It has its own memory. It has its own records. It has its own morality and ethics. And when the human being with his mind transgresses the ethics of the magnetic field, he gets sick. Because everything in nature is constantly laboring toward an equilibrium, which will keep things as nearly in order as possible. So we look at the earth now as a kind of world with many levels. The Egyptians did the same thing. They, in the old tombs, there are still old diagrams showing the levels of the planet and the, of the solar system and of all the invisible beings that dwell therein. The Tibetans and Buddhists had the seven heavens, and so did the Christians in the apocalypse. All of these mysteries are now counted as merely aberrations. Well, some of them probably are aberrations, but what is an admiration? What is it that causes the individual to create fantasy? What is it that causes him to emotionalize every fact of his living? There has to be an emotional energy or he cannot do it. There has to be a mental energy or he cannot think. There has to be a vital energy or the body could, be, could not be repaired in case of sickness and the growth of the child would be impossible. So everywhere there is life behind the scenes. Now, as soon as man began to recognize the possibility of life behind the scenes, he wanted to get to look at it, to find out about it, to do something with it. He was not content simply to live in a mystery. So he went to work, but unfortunately, he was not well equipped for the job. The energies which he was seeking to understand were also in himself, but he had never done anything with them in himself. He had never attempted to organize his own life and bring it in harmony with the universal purpose. He was determined to take this universal purpose and force it into harmony with his own purposes. So there was a conflict here, and out of this conflict, magic was one of the byproducts. It was one of the experimental structures in which the individual was attempting to understand the energies around him, moving through him, and variously conditioning him. Among other things, he discovered that his mind could control not only visible and physical thoughts, but invisible thoughts.
thoughts. The mind of the individual could create thoughts. And where are thoughts? What are they? How are they born? Do they live? How do they die? Here is something that we pass over. We don't even try to explain these things. We say we had an idea one morning. Where did it come from? Was it any good? How do we know that it came from us? Did we borrow it from somebody else? And is this idea useful or useless? Is it constructive or perverse? Is it is helping something or hurting something? These problems we have no way of estimating except through the old esoteric doctrines that have descended to us from uh, minds such as Paracelsus and Pythagoras. The ancients definitely believed that the individual had a field of energy around him which could and did affect his life, that he also could poison this field with his own thinking, that he could destroy himself, and that phenomena such as drug addiction and alcoholism are aspects of the perversion of energies, that they are the sickening of the field of the imagination that surrounds the body. So we have a problem that goes back to the dawn of time as to what is imagination, how does it work, and is there a solid structure there, and how can we direct it, or how does it direct us. All this was part of ceremonial magic, became involved in the Kabbalah, and has more lately taken its place in metaphysical psychology. All of these elements, therefore, uh, must be brought down to some level where we can use them, where we can find out what they're doing to us or what we are doing to them. At the present moment, the astral light is largely the product of what we have done to it. This field is a kind of field of the ghost world. It is the field of the invisible, but in a sense bound to the visible form of life. The uh, Egyptians knew this ghost of phantom world. They also equated it with sleep and dreams and uh, believed in many cases, and perhaps correctly, that the dream life of the individual is not a mere fantasy. It is a fantasizing of something else. Anyway, we find in modern thinking there has come out of it all a kind of concept of magic the magic of accomplishing certain purposes by dramatic intensities of the will. With magic also has come an absolutely unnecessary correlative, and that is ritual. Now, the Indian on the reservation here in the southwest is a good example of a primitive magic lingering on through time. An Indian finds a little pebble. It is a nice little pebble. He puts it away to keep, but the pebble is still a pebble. But later he finds another pebble, which he likes, and he puts it side by side with the first one. He likes the combination, so he ties a thread around it and put a feather in one end, and it isn't two little rocks anymore. It is now a fetish. Now, a fetish is something that uh, has magic power, a combination of things that is not ordinary. Things in their ordinary states are not fetishes, but when they are put into an extraordinary relationship with themselves or each other, then they gain magical influence. And the two little stones that were done nothing in their natural state suddenly may have the power of life and death, 
in the mind of the Indian who had created a fetish from them. This is another aspect of the same thing as the so-called ghost and dance and mask rites of ancient peoples. We have an exhibit in the library here now of the sacred masks of the Southwest American Indians. The Indian is perfectly aware of the fact that the mask is made by himself. He is perfectly aware of the fact that when he is wearing it, he is still himself. But when he combines the mask with himself, something happens. While he is wearing this mask, the astral light has stepped into his consciousness. Magic. He is no longer simply a member of the tribe. He is now some kind of a strange being conjured up by sorcery, conjured up by imagination, by ritual, rite, and symbol. Therefore, uh, the Indian, I've been up to where they put these dances on once a year, and uh, a young Indian, for instance, with a mask, will be approached by his own family, his wife, his mother. But if when he is wearing the mask, they will pray to him as a god. The moment he takes it off, he's back on earth. But in the, in the, mid, the midst of ritual, of magic, of transformation, something happens. Eliphas Levy, the French transcendentalist, says that these things are creatures of the astral light. There is something that is not really imaginary, and yet is. Something that gains a new dimension. In spite of the strange fantasy of it, we realize that this type of thing has been in religion since the beginning. One of the most common forms of this in religion is the relic. Something that belonged to a venerated person. Something that has healing power because it belonged at one time to the body of a saint or something of this nature. These things are extensions. And like the, the uh, healings of uh, various Christian mystical shrines, uh, like St. Anne de Bonpré in Canada, or Lourdes, this place is magical. It is magic because a strange story has been built up around it. This story transforms the commonplace into magic. Magic of ritual, mad magic of sacred accounts, legends, lore, and all these things suddenly transform objects of common usage into things extremely uncommon, things possessing strange and secret powers. Now, where do these powers come from? In the sense, they must come from believing. If you did not believe in them, they would not exist. But what is it in the person that by believing can change his entire life? What is it that when an individual, for instance, is converted to a religion, that this conversion in words, laying on of hands, or some, some symbolical ritual, suddenly transforms him. He has ceased to be a sinner and is becoming a saint. Some strange healing takes place from a source difficult to analyze. All these different mysteries seem to belong to an invisible realm that is very close to us, and which under certain conditions becomes available to us a realm which perhaps we contact in sleep, in dreams, in uh, night, nightmares, in trance, and under psychic pressures, as uh, through a medium or something of this nature. There is some mysterious contact which suddenly changes the commonplace that makes us believe things that in our more sober moments we would not believe. 
But whether they are sober moments or not, when they happen, even the skeptic is profoundly influenced. There is something around us that the ancients knew that changed things. And uh, this probably came originally from the belief that the spirits of the ancestors remain close and that the old tribal chief who had passed on still guarded his tribe. He also got unhappy if the tribe broke the rules. If they did something they shouldn't do, the old spirit haunts them, and they have to placate it by making offerings, prayers, ceremonies, and doing various things to counteract the disfavor that has arisen between themselves and their patron deities. So all the great pantheon of deities propitiated by rites and ceremonies and rituals are very, this is all very hard to explain, but beyond it all, and in spite of our uncertainties, it works. Something happens. And it is this something that happens that has been the subject of most ceremonial magic. That the commonplace under uncommon circumstances gains a new dimension of power. And that this power is available. That this power does operate. And that this power can profoundly influence the individual. Now there comes another point in this. That to determine the degree of the power and to determine the way or means of the influence. To begin with, the influence arises from believing. Believing is something which leaves a person open to the unfamiliar and also makes possible the miracle. Without believing, the miracle is virtually impossible. But with believing, faith, and trust, with belief that it is possible, miracles of incredible proportions have occurred. There is no doubt in the world that there is a means or power by which the individual can attract certain forces or circumstances out of the strange mystery of the inner worlds which he inhabits. So we have to come now to the consideration of this structure of magic and how it really came into existence. I think we must, first of all, determine that behind the physical world there is a world of energies and that these energies are stratified. That behind the physical body is an etheric energy, a kind of ether which permeates the body, and that much of difficulty and sickness and sorrow and misery result from the defects which arise in the ether. The etheric body is attached to the physical body, largely in the area of the spleen, and the physical body is constantly energized from a certain definite structure. In other words, the energy that comes into the body of the individual is supposed to arise primarily from nutrition, from uh, air, and from sidereal influences of one kind or another. Influences can also be communicated from one person to another. And an individual highly venerated has a much stronger effect upon others than one who is not so venerated. So all around us, believing is releasing, changing, moving energies. It is conditioning them for good or for bad. It is conditioning the bad conscience to face the probabilities of punishment. 
It is conditioning the dedicated mystic to the realization that sometime he will have all the answers to the questions that he asks. Everywhere a kind of mystical sympathy exists between things. And this mystical energy also relates to deity, for the most extreme and abstract of all problems is God. And God is the source of all life, and the universe is the structure through which this life is disseminated. Therefore, somewhere, whether we see it or not, is a great arterial system of energies. These energies moving from one level of, of application to another. One stream of energy feeds the trees and another one feeds the flowers. Everywhere, however, energy is supporting all things that live. Yet the energy apart from something that lives is definitely impossible to define. Energy can only be known by what it does. Energy can only be assumed to be real because without it, many questions could not be answered. So we have an energy field of life. This energy field is part of the health of each person. The energy disseminating through the body moves through all of the circulatory system. Some of this energy is in the tiniest cell or atom. Part of this energy gives us the power to think. Another part gives us the power to walk. All this energy of some kind is real. Now, we have long assumed, for example, that uh, the body just takes care of itself, and if we feed it regularly, it'll take care of us. This is a complete lack of understanding, and it has very serious consequences because it prevents us from cooperating consciously and intelligently with the energies which do supply us the necessary elements of health and survival. Therefore, somewhere in this pattern, there is an energy, a sea of it, a great ocean of it, which like air itself, which may be its principal carrier, that fills all of these vacancies of space, exists in every creature, shares its reality and its power with the horse and the tiniest insect. Everything is supported and is alive because of a life principle in it. And this life principle is not sustained by food. It is not sustained by exercise. But its condition and its ability to function is largely influenced by the conduct of the creature that it inhabits. That this energy is universal, not only in its a dis dissemination, but in the infinite variation and variety of modes and forms. Therefore, it is indeed a kind of protean life that takes any appearance that exists. It can be found in the anthill or it can be found in the elephant. Everything that lives, lives off of this energy, and in everything this energy is exactly adapted to the needs of that thing. The answer seems to be that in one way or another the energy is what fashioned that thing in the beginning. Because every physical visible force is merely a manifestation of one of these great invisible streams of energy that functions in space. So if we start looking into this, we begin to say how the ancients could have imagined and did imagine that this world that we don't see the world in which we are constantly pouring things and having them poured back at us out of this strange atmosphere. One of the most common problems, of course, is imagination. 
Is there anything that a human being can imagine that could not exist? This has been a great question. Is imagination capable of creating life or creating things? Or is it merely a transformer? Is it merely a way in which energy of another type is steered or conditioned into a pattern we have created with our own thinking. Now, I think in fantasy we have this fairly well figured. We find healers, and spiritual healing is distinctly a possibility. We find that magnetic healing is accomplished by opening up the locked areas of distribution of energy through the body. All death in form is the result of obstruction. Energy breaks up obstruction. If energy fails, obstruction takes over. So healing of various kinds of a religious nature certainly does exist. Now, of course, the moment you say that, you place yourself in the problem of magic. If you study this and you realize that you have been to a healer of good reputation and that you have had constructive results, the question now remains is, why and how did you get these results? Did the healer actually give you a kind of healing that was separate from your own consciousness? Was it superior and absolute like a medication, something that is given to you? Or was the healing a stimulation of your own internal resources? It is probably a little of both. It is a little both because, under a belief, we are capable of accomplishing a great deal. This is well po pointed out in Oriental philosophy in the phenomenon of Zen, where the entire development of the individual arises from the complete conditioning of his own psychic integration. Now, if it is this, if it is the individual who is healing himself, then he is healing himself by releasing energy. He has broken up an obstruction. Now, if we uh, go up to another level of energy, we can take mental energy. An individual who has a new idea or learns something will have the power to break up the obstruction of a previous error. If he discovers he was wrong in something and by discovery gets a remedy, then he breaks up the error pattern in himself. And how did the error pattern get into it? It came because he himself put it there through an erroneous attitude or by believing something that was not true. So the correction and the ailment are tied together by one great factor alone, and that, well, and that is energy. Energy which permits all changes and transformations to occur. Energy which changes the moral life of everything, results in the evolution of species, results also in the mysterious worlds of space around us. Energy, then, is a factor in all magic. It is life. It is something that can be steered. Now, there are two ways of steering it. One is the individual trying to adapt it to his own needs, and the other is a universal power adapting or adopting energy to its purposes through living things. Therefore, there is an energy that arises directly from deity, and there is an energy that arises from deity, but is distributed through forms, including the human being. 
And this is represented by the, in the ancient formula, by the fact that there are rays that go directly from the sun to the earth, and from the earth into man. There are also rays that go directly from the sun to the moon, and then are uh, carried across to man from the lunar orb, even though it is dead, so-called. There is no thing actually dead. But the energy field of the moon is very slow in comparison to that of a live planet. So all these different things are happening in space. And in the midst of these rises the magician, the uh, person trying to use magic. Magic being the adaptation of energy, the application of it to other forms than that which is most commonly assigned to it. The energy factor that says all things are possible. The energy that takes the poor boy into the great scientist, or takes the comparatively self-centered individual and makes out of him an, an economic giant. These things are all energy. Without the energy, he couldn't accomplish anything. But with the energy, he has something that adapts itself to the shape or purpose of himself. But there are laws governing this energy, and the individual does not normally know what these laws are. Therefore, he assumes that energy can be used as he pleases, and if he discovers new ways to use it, he is that more fortunate. Actually, however, energy is conditioned, limited, restricted, and specialized, just as every other element in nature. So the individual who uses energy for magical means, uh, came finally to become considered under two headings, ceremonial or divine magic, and negative or black magic. White magic was the use of all energies for the good of all that lives. Therefore, white magic is the unselfish application of, <coughs> of energies. Black magic is selfishness. Black magic is the use of uh, understanding, wisdom, uh, knowledge of secret matters by means of which an individual can impose a tyranny upon someone else. So the uh, use of energy has its own price, its own expense, its own bill that will be definitely brought to bear on the subject. In the uh, problem of energy then, now we'll go into a kind of an Egyptian phase of this, and we see the individual in a world of shadow forms. Uh, we have a, a term here, symbol. And there is an ancient art of symbolism. Now a symbol is a picture of a motive or an idea or a meaning. It is putting a mysterious truth into the form of a picture. And this is also the same thing that happens in the case of the astral light. All action, all attitude, all feeling can be considered as pictorial. Everything that exists has a shape of some kind. Some of these shapes we can see around us in daily life. Some of these shapes impose themselves upon us in sleep as dreams and nightmares. Some of these shapes never appear to the physical world at all. Others are particularly limited to the abilities of psychics. But in every instance, every single thought or emotion has a picture, has a likeness of itself, a mathematical pattern, a geometrical balanced design which stands for it. 
all the symmetrical patterns are related to good or constructive things, asymmetrical to evil. All things that are good are beautiful. All things that are bad are ultimately hideous. We therefore always represent evil beings as monsters of one kind or another. And we are a little closer than we realize to the symbolism, because all evil is monstrous. All things which are destructive look destructive if the psychic or the clairvoyant has the capability of seeing them. Therefore, in the Egyptian philosophy, the world of the afterlife is filled with symbols. Symbols that have been brought into existence here. Symbols that represent conduct, codes of action, ways of doing things. And in the human being at the time of death, there is a ka, a particular level of being, which contains or epitomizes these emblems. So that the ghost of the individual going into this other dimension takes on the appearance of its true nature rather than the appearance of the person that, uh, and how they looked in this world. Consequently, the evil person slowly becomes symbolical of, a, of an evil arrangement of things. An evil picture, an evil monstrosity appears, which has no real existence as a monster, but is simply a true picture of the behavior of a living person now deceased. This living person, therefore, now deceased, remains either approximately human, going on until re-embodiment, or it goes through a process of re renovation, to the Egyptians at least. They believe that this ghost-like thing represented a level of the being, a kind of shadow, a symbol, an emblem. And in the afterlife, the individual remains for a time identified with this. Finally, the true person departs from the emblem, having overcome it through experience and through greater understanding, and ascends, and the ghost monster slowly disintegrates and into a kind of inferno in which there is no longer any life in it. The Egyptians and Greeks, however, believe that occasionally these ghosts were taken on by entities that are not human or might have been at some time, and therefore become obsessing or possessing spirits. And in black magic, like the case of Dr. Faust, we hear that ultimately his devil took him and uh, Faust was forced to face the consequences of his own evil deeds. Actually, though, the actual procedure, while it is symbolized in the diagrams of Tibet, where we find all kinds of beings, divine and monstrous, they are all parts of this vision period of the astral light. They are parts of things that are not essentially true, but are non-essentially present due to the complications of rational thinking or emotion. If, therefore, the individual, uh, having negative attitudes, wishes to, in one way or another, misuse the psychic energies, or misuse the other forms of etheric vitality, which they need to live with. If this happens, then trouble is bound to happen as a consequence. There has to be a, a negative reaction. And this we find where in Europe there's museums, there are numbers of packs signed between 
uh, human beings and and demons. These packs were, the, were that the demons should serve the human being, as in the case of Faust, for a certain number of t years, after which the human person gave his soul to the evil one as compensation, or as a payment of this debt. Uh, this type of thinking, of course, is not exactly possible of rationalization, but it does indicate that the individual believes that if he gains through evil some profit, some security or success, he is ultimately going to pay for it. That the evil which he uses for his own benefit will sometime turn on him and punish him. So all of these mysterious energy levels have a high ethical standing. They permit no misuse of any natural force or combination or pattern of forces without without consequential punishment. So we have all this to think about, and then we come right on down to a little bit into our modern way of life, see what, what we can think through on this particular level. Being surrounded by energies that we need to live. We now begin to realize, simply in eugenics and hygienics, that these energies must be conserved, and that our various attitudes in life must be correct, or in some way or another, we are going to get into trouble. We're in trouble one way at the present time, particularly in the narcotics problem. As far as the scientist and the social worker is concerned, the narcotic addict is simply an individual with a weak disposition uh, who has formed a destructive habit, which will ultimately destroy him. This is, however, not exactly the whole story. In the old days, it would have been taken for granted that uh, this type of thing is one way of selling the soul to evil. In other words, the individual who, in weakness or in uh, indifference, uh, destroys or damages his own body, uh, creates an attraction and the very habit-forming quality which he has become addicted to, cocaine or something of this nature. While he is still alive, a, a kind of uh, vampire, a kind of incubus, representing dis deceased drug addicts, they d damage the etheric atmosphere and move in on the individual with a possessing power. And many, uh, no doubt that many of the reasons that drug addiction uh, is so difficult to break is that the individual is fighting not only his own weakness, uh, but uh, an obsession which has taken over part of his internal life. He has to break away, not for himself, but for something that has moved in upon him like an obsessing monster. And this monster is probably a deceased person still desperately desirous of having the, the narcotic or drug. All of this uh, seems fantastic, seems as though it might be sheer imagination. But whatever it is, the fact remains we're in trouble. The fact also remains that we are in trouble from only one cause, and that is the misuse of the vital resources that we possess. We are in trouble because we believe things that are not true. And by means of one type of energy, we create a, a verisimilitude for these things that are not true. In other words, energy can be wasted on a delusion. Energy can be wasted when we believe something that is not right. 
It can be uh, moved to its own destruction when we attempt the impossible. And it is also undoubtedly true that it will give us trouble the moment our ambitions impel us to acts which are dishonest or dishonorable or selfish. Energy is moral. We have to recognize that this problem is one of ethics, that every misuse of energy is punished by that energy itself. The energy which is dis uh, disappoint disappointed or abused is like a physical body that has been damaged by excess. The body finally turns and punishes the person who has abused it. Energies do the same thing. Emotional thing, uh, energies, uh, feelings, will turn upon the individual who abuses them. The energy of emotion is part of the astral light. It is part of this mysterious invisible which performs visible functions. Therefore, hate is certainly an, a misuse of energy. All the different excesses, every unbeautiful or, or ignoble use of energy, any abuse of energy, is not punished by the body but through the body. It is punished because the abuse has damaged the balance of equilibrium. This abuse has damaged the flow of life force through the vital organs of the body. The body is damaged, but the thing that damages it is not the actual the drug, although it's bad enough. The thing that's damaged it is the habit, the idea of dependency, or the belief that some false action is going to be rewarded with happiness or pleasure. This is a world today of ulterior motives. Everyone is trying to get what he wants. Everyone believes that his own desires are of first importance, and he is perfectly willing to sacrifice other people for the attainment of his own purposes. This is an abuse of energy. This is a misuse of the mysterious field of life in which we exist. It is also tied up with the karmic records that are carried from one life to another. Well, these records are carried in the magnetic fields. And the individual uh, can uh, and will in time find out the reason for all the things that happen to him, but not until he is able to stand this discovery without personal damage. So all these different factors work together. And in our problems of daily living, we have to work out some solution. And in religion, we have to be particularly careful, because religion was involved in magic from the beginning. And religion is still, to a great degree, involved in the mysteries of the astral light. Miracles are, are spiritual experiences supported by psychic energies. They are perfectly legitimate if they occur, but they will not permanently occur unless they are merited. The individual who deserves a certain mysterious and miraculous occurrence may have it, but a person who does not deserve it even if they have something that appears to be it, will be damaged rather than helped. So it's very important in religion to think through this problem of the astral light. The astral light contacts us as a substance to be used or abused, to be formed or transformed into the problems and solutions of daily existence. Essentially, one point, ethics. The, the religions of the world are nearly all in trouble today. They are in trouble because they have gradually sacrificed their ethics. 
they have gradually made a, a program of expansion and conversion and have done everything possible to gain political power. All of this is contrary to the purposes of religion. The purpose of religion is to help the individual to orient constructively with both the visible and the invisible worlds in which he functions. Religion has to do, therefore, with creating a power in man, a kind of shining armor which prohibits the entry of negative factors. The individual who wishes to compromise is going to be lost very quickly. He can say, I'll just do this little thing once, no one cares, but that not once becomes twice, and after a while, the entire psychic life is demoralized. Also, we know that uh, behind all of this is a great damage in the astral life of the planet. We know, for instance, and as we're beginning to recognize now, that when we get naughty, when we do what we shouldn't do, nature gets angry. And we are having today a combination of circumstances that should give us cause for a great deal of consideration. We have on one side ambitious dictators seeking to dominate countries and, if necessary, exterminate the population. And while they're hard at this, terrorist groups are out assassinating public personalities. And while all this is going on, volcanic eruptions and earthquakes are working out, tidal waves are rising up, cyclones are out on the increase, and the temperatures and seasonal developments of the various continents are seriously affected. In other words, it's a general disturbance. The story of earthquakes and moral difficulties very closely linked. The story of moral difficulties and epidemics and plagues are very closely linked together. In the 12th and 13th century, the church prayed for deliverance from the comet, the plague, and the Turk. And we're just about the same spot. Now, we're having trouble with the Turk. We're having trouble with epidemics and ailments we know no cure for. We're endangered by natural phenomena. Everything that is happening is an indication that physical unrest, physical dissonance, will result in a complete imbalance of natural processes. We cannot abuse nature any more than we can abuse each other with impunity. We cannot pollute the atmosphere and have it not polluted. We cannot do things that we shouldn't do and then expect to get away with it. But we are living in a kind of a hollow globe of energy, a tremendous, luminous, fluorescent energy. And this energy is adulterated and corrupted or strengthened and assisted by every circumstance of life. We know definitely that uh, the present situation must be solved. We know also that it cannot be solved unless people stop doing the things that cause it. The possibility of passing a law saying that as we sow, we will not reap is just not possible. We have to take the punishment if we do the deed. Now, almost everyone likes to overdraw their account so far as natural resources 
are concerned. We, we are um, happy when a bank goes bankrupt, and that's happening with unusual uh, uh, quantity at the present time. But we are becoming bankrupt too. And this bankruptcy of ourselves is far worse than the loss of the dollar. This bankruptcy of ourselves will and can destroy the equilibrium of the planet. The planet is alive, and the planet is getting tired, undoubtedly, of the nuisances that are inhabiting it. <laughs> it is getting weary of being told constantly how we love each other and at the same time go out and kill each other. It is, nature is aware that we are not giving due consideration to the consequences of our own actions. And this is not only in connection with our constructive and destructive moral attitudes, but it is partly involved in the advancements of the sciences, in anything in which there are major changes in environment, there must be appropriate improvements of character or something goes wrong. Now what goes wrong is this imbalance of energy. And it can well be that uh, we are worried about the contamination of our drinking water. We are worried about the fact that the ocean can't carry all of the refuse that we have forever. We are worried concerning the artificial uh, control of pesticides and so on to keep our crops coming in. These things were worrying us, but nobody does anything about it, really. They pass a series of laws in which they set up a new trouble to try to correct the old ones. But actually, somewhere in the line, the human being has got to realize that he lives in a universe of law and order. He lives in a world in which common sense exists in the atmosphere, even if it doesn't exist within man. When we find that we cannot do something, then we have to begin to think of making the changes in ourselves that are necessary so that we can survive. If we can't afford something, we cannot afford it, that's all. If we cannot continue some expansion program that is going to ultimately denude the earth and destroy its subfields, we will stop doing it. There is no other way. And there is nothing that can possibly prevent the great uh, computerizing of life. The invisible world around us is the most perfect computer that we will ever know. Because it can truly measure the fall of one sparrow. It can detect the mistakes and bring out the inevitable consequences. In almost every case, mistake is suffering. And if it isn't suffering immediately, it will ultimately be suffering. And somewhere along the line, we have to realize that health is the result of not causing suffering. That health means that we have to bear witness to this universe of energies, which, are, which is perfectly balanced, in which everything necessary for existence is available, but cannot necessarily be uh, sold on a basis of so much per share. It is something in which we have to keep the rules, and then the rules will keep us. In our own personal life, we got a whole group of psychic fantasies today that are close to the borderline of the past. 
We, we don't want to be considered superstitious like our remote ancestors. We don't want to consider our modern civilization as depending upon witch doctors for survival. But what we do feel constantly is the belief or feeling that in some way we can neutralize universal law by an attitude, that we can find some magic to cure the mistakes that we make, that we do not even have to repent them. And some religions have even gone so far as to glorify them, to tell us that these mistakes are perfectly acceptable. The atheists, on the other hand, are a negative factor because they not, not only deny the mistake, but they deny the universal intelligence that is behind the problem. The atheists can never solve anything. Atheism as a religion can never solve anything because it gives us no basis of integrity upon which to build. The uh, problem of the atheist always is that he has no internal inducement to improve. His whole inducement is to spread his own doctrines throughout a suffering world. He does not recognize the importance of having a firmness within himself that can strengthen him to be true to principles, regardless of what his theology may be. But when atheism destroys the realization of universal ethics, it is simply contributing to the general dilemma. Atheism is spreading, but not very rapidly at the moment. Uh, it is becoming more and more difficult to justify it. But not only do we have atheism with its negative attitude, but we have other people who believe firmly that we are here to do exactly as we please, enjoy anything we can get our hands on, and cheat our neighbor with impunity. We are living by a profit system in a universe in which there is only one profit, and that is virtue. We are living in a universe that is tied into a concept of universal cooperation. The function of these fields of energy can only be maintained by the cooperation of each of these different forms of energy and the beings and creatures through which they function. We know definitely that if we want to benefit from the tremendous reservoir of psychic strength that lies out there, that we have to deserve it, we have to earn it, and we have to use it wisely. Every perversion of energy will end in tragedy. And the most common tragedy, of course, is health. And the next most common tragedy is worldly goods. So we have to be prepared for this type of situation if, it, if we continue as we do now. Now, we have these ancient pictures. I know many of the great artists of the Middle Ages, the Renaissance masters, of demons of all kinds, St. Anthony being tempted, the evil one peeking over the shoulder of the would-be saint, all of these things. The evil one, in this case, represents the ruler over the power of this and world of deceit. And this is the negative psychic life of the individual himself. In each person there is a, a redeemer and a destroyer. In each of us, there is a transformation upward or a degeneration downward. And it, uh, the degeneration is in the keeping of this evil spirit, which is simply the embodiment of a symbolism. Our advancement forward is in the keeping of a good and kindly spirit, which is going to bring us finally to the fulfillment of our natural destiny. So all these evil things 
this world of demons that has been preserved for us, these obsessing problems that we still have. In working over the years, I've had to work with many people who are profoundly convinced that medieval sorcery was working on them today, that they are suffering definitely from the black magic of those around them. The evil spirits are moving in on them. And, of course, these folks are under the fantasy of the astral life. They are under the fantasy that makes anything you believe the truth. And that uh, one we believe wrongly, we've got to correct it. Now, when a person has the wrong beliefs and gets into these troubles, uh, what do they do? Well, you can go to them, and you can talk with them, and you can reason with them. And in many instances, you can do some good. But in a great many other instances, you can do nothing. The individual is far more certain of his own aberration than any possible solution. He has had this suffering himself, and therefore the opinion of another person is worthless. He has seen these evil spirits in his sleep, therefore who denies them is a fool. The individual who is in serious trouble has built a certainty about his trouble. He is so sure of it, so completely wrapped up in it, that no one can reach him. No one can tell him that it's his own hallucination. No one can tell him that the demons that bother him are the results of his own misuses of energy or his own misinterpretation of the happenings of living. The individual who has gradually developed a neurosis is only one step from being a black magician. Another individual who is in hysteria is already close to the magic of the astral life. These things are moods, they are conditions, they are factors that the individual himself builds up. And this building up also builds up this field of energy which we are all in. The various mistakes of the whole of humanity do create in magical energy fields a, a stratum of difficulty. In other words, just as surely as physical refuse can poison the planet, so psychological refuse can poison the astral life, can poison the metaphysical field of energy. If we keep on feeding delusion, it, it will stroll, grow and become stronger. Physically, it will gain more converts, and esoterically, it will corrupt the substance from which imagination must be built. Now, imagination as a constructive force is a very beautiful thing. Imagination has given us great art and great music. It has given us some of the noblest lives the world has ever known. It has given us the dreams of a better life, but stronger dreams than we would otherwise ever have. Imagination is a very beautiful thing. But if this imagination turns sour, it turns the same way that the things we see around us. We see great music turning sour. We see a terrible noise taking the place of music. We find literature turning sour. The days of great writing are no longer venerated or respected. Nobody reads them anymore. In a very short time, motion pictures and television have gotten into very serious moral difficulties simply because they did not have the courage to stick to principles. Everywhere we turn, decadence is the 
prevailing circumstance. And this decadence represents a, a kind of infection. It is something that not only we gain through contact physically, but the energy fields that supply the life upon which we must live are also depleted. The energy fields not giving us the proper supply of constructive energy, we begin to be sick, we get tired, we get worried. We find more and more justification in fear. And all these things represent finally a vast chemistry, a great negative alchemy that is affecting all of us and affecting the world in which we live. Now, we can't necessarily go out and force a change in the astral light. It is said that uh, after the crucifixion that Christ descended into limbo to liberate the lost souls. This was a part of the idea of the ministry, that he could cleanse or harrowed Hades. And this was part of the doctrine also in the Orient, where the Buddhas went down into the underworld uh, to redeem the lost or tired or broken ones. Now, this does not mean that either Christianity or Buddhism or any other religion actually believed in hell. There is no conscious religion that's worth anything that believes in ultimate damnation. There must always be a redemption of some kind. But this damnation that we're worrying about is not something uh, that we have to regard as an eternal hell. It is something which we must regard as a level of misuse, a misunderstanding, abuse of powers and privileges, that we have gradually weakened our own integrities, and if there is an evil world, it's right here, not where we go. We cannot go, as Plato pointed out, to anything much worse than we have here. <laughs> and uh, the idea that the solution lies in escaping from here is no good. Because wherever we go, we take ourselves with us. And it is the self we take with us that is the greatest cause of our annoyance. It is the greatest cause of our distress and misery. Consequently, we have to get to work and more or less use fantasy, use imagination for great good. We have seen the wonderful poems of the mystics. We have seen the beautiful scriptures that have been given to us by all the nations of the world. We see the magnificent architecture. We see the tremendous beauty that, of the garden that has been given proper and due care. We find the glory and wisdom of the good person who has lived well in the fulfillment of duty, responsibility, and dedication. All these things are part of fantasy, part of imagination. But they are what Jack London called dreaming true. They are the thing that proves that the fantasy is really an anticipation of the fact that everything that we hope for can come. Everything we believe to be right will triumph. But at the same time, we must do what we can to get away from contributing to the attitudes that make us sick. And one of the, re one of the good answers to this is that we must get over the idea that we can correct any condition we do not like unless we cannot correct it unless we outgrow it. This has to be solved. We cannot walk out on our crimes, sins, and misdemeanors. We can take them to the grave, but they will not end there. We must definitely 
take hold of the great concept of the ethical universe, which energies for every particular purpose. We, we uh, not only long, not long ago, read a little article about Zen and Buddhism, and then it was something I'm going to do something with some of these days, if I last that long. And that is the, the fact that snow was crying when it melted. Now, this is a kind of a strange thought out of context. But to the idea it is, even snow is a being. Everything is a reality of some kind. Everything that we abuse is a reality that weeps. Everything we do well is a reality that rejoices. Every single thought we have has some relation to being. Hope is a being as well as a word. Hate is a being. These things become internal monsters or good spirits depending on themselves. But everywhere there has to be this realization of the tremendous potential of being the thing we need to be. We must gradually awaken to the fact that this universe is essentially beautiful, that the Garden of Eden is still here, that all of the nobility of existence awaits release, and fantasy, the constructive fantasy, is the individual dreaming of a better world and building a foundation under the dream. Dreams come through to lead us to new certainties. Nightmares do the same. And they both use the same kind of energy, but it is differentiated by the organism through which it passes. Hater, the hater uses more energy to hate, the lover more energy to love. The proper use of the energy resources is the cleansing of the Aegean stable in the labors of Hercules. It is also the symbol, always, of the redemption of lost souls. The lost souls are ourselves, but also the lost souls are the beauties that we have corrupted. The lost soul is harmony that we have tamed into inharmony. The lost soul is joy which remained in, turned into grief. The lost soul is hope which we have transformed into fear. They are all uses of the same great energy powers. They are the same uses that we have to make in terms of our internal lives. In external, we have to plant farming. We have to get crops. We have to find various ways of feeding the world, as we try to do. These are the physical things. In the emotional world, we also have to have our crops, our sowing, and our reaping. We have to build materials there that become part of sustaining the integrities of life. And these are, integrities are sustained in two ways, either from below or from above. As they are sustained from below when we create beauty and do lovely things and make wonderful poems and write great books. All these things inspire and lift the individual toward reality. On the opposite side, we have an inner life of dreams and hopes and aspirations, of love and affection and integrities. And as we cultivate these from above downward, the beauties of below come up to meet, and then they, we have a beautiful world. We have a world and things do, uh, are done as they should be, 
and that we enjoy the results of this doing because it was something that we were intended to do from the beginning. There never was a time when the world was not supposed to grow. And now we have so many problems that it seems as though something more than ourselves must be to blame. We wonder whether or not the nuclear fission has rocked the foundations of heaven. It hasn't. But it is going to rock the foundations of misuse of knowledge. We have two and three great abuses that we have to watch for. Abuse of knowledge, which can lead to the most terrible uh, difficulties. Abuse of affections, the exploitation of the natural love of the individual, of beauty and personal affections. The cleansing of the personal affectionate relationships of human beings is absolutely essential to the final ending of war. It is a well-established home with people sacrificing a little of themselves always for the good of the family, accepting responsibility with dignity, and working together without losing individuality. This makes the home, and this is what the nations are going to have to do to make a world that can survive. So all these principles work, and they work because behind the physical sources of good, there is this invisible source of energies, energies which express themselves as we create bodies for them. A good thought becomes a body for a beautiful energy supply. The individual wants to paint a beautiful picture and with prayerfulness and integrity and honesty asks a little spiritual guidance in the picture, we'll get it. And the individual who asks only for corruption will get that also. So we have this strange world of fantasy, imagination, call it if you will, the world of the astral light, where thoughts are things, where moods are realities, and where things in this world seem very much less real than they do to us. But in this world of fantasy is the world of our hope for tomorrow. Fantasy, beautiful fantasy, is building tomorrow. Fantasy is creating the world that must be. It will come. But it will not come unless men dream it, unless human beings begin to realize the importance of it. When we use the natural resources of this world well, we will be, con we will be secure. When we use the resources of this invisible realm around us, real and true, we will have peace of mind, we will have health, we will have natural and noble emotions, and we will have dedications to causes and principles that are worthwhile. The universe has everything in it, good, bad, and indifferent, so-called. The bad, however, is not a principle. The bad is a misuse. It is the result of constant compromising. It is the result of selfishness, ignorance, and fear. And these things can only be cured by the love of God, the strength of the mind, and the dedication of the life. These things together will solve most of these problems. They're not insolvable. They're simply things we pay no attention to. We just keep on going along, hoping that unpleasant things will go away. They will never go away unless we send them away. And the only way we can send them away is by transforming them. They will not leave us, but we can create a new body for them, by means of which problems become donations to our 
security and our future. Every problem that we have is a blessing in disguise. Every sorrow that comes to us is a great opportunity for the experience of divine peace and joy. All these things are things we have to change. And if we were just physical people with minds and things like this, we'd never change them. But because of this strange world of mysterious causes behind us, this infiniteness of ourselves, so that we are not really just little people wandering around in our, in our own little homes and streets and cities, but we are symbols, we are points of energy in the world. And behind each one of us is an inconceivable totality, a reservoir of infinite strength, infinite beauty, infinite reality. If we turn it on, we will have it. If we turn it on honestly, the shadows will disappear. For there is not enough darkness in all the world to put out the light of a single candle. Everything can be the way it should be. Everything can be beautiful. Everything can be fulfilled. Because the fulfillment, the energy is there. Heaven is not somewhere off in space. Heaven is in the upper realms of ourselves and our world. Heaven is where we make the right decisions and are glad. And having made these decisions, we cooperate with the earth to preserve it and to help it to serve us as wisely as it should. The astrolite, then, is not just a place where you turn on a ritual and make a circle somewhere on a crossroad and invoke demons and try to protect yourself by putting yourself in a circle so the demon cannot get to you, but it can get to someone else. All of this is superstition belonging to the past. Anyone who favors it can favor it and will have a reality from it, a fantasy that is not true. A fantasy which can curse and endanger the soul for many, many years. If a fantasy that brings sorrow, misery, fear, disillusionment, discouragement. These are the fantasies that come from not dreaming true. Dreams are beautiful. The nightmares give us trouble. And the nightmare, as always, is the cause of something we ate that we shouldn't have eaten. And it is also the, the cause, it's also caused by something we thought we shouldn't have thought, some emotion we should not have endured, or some belief that is doing us no good. So we have to correct these things. But the interesting point is the energy. The nightmare has to have energy. The nightmares can be so real that it is more immediate than anything that happens in daylight. The dream can be so real. In a dream, we can travel around the world. In a dream, we can go to all the different nations, out into space. We can conquer where the great uh, scientific progresses of man can never go. The dreams are tremendous realities, and yet they are merely the, the stuff of fantasy. But they are great fantasies. They are the representation of what everything can be. The dream is a reality that hasn't come through yet, if it's a good dream. If it is a nightmare, it is an unreality that we are clinging to. Whichever way it is, this we are all dependent upon one great energy. Call it God, call it nature, call it life, call it reality or being. But it is one great energy. And the future of the world and the future of ourselves 
depends entirely upon the use of this energy. To the ancients who did not know what to call it or how to use it, really, they called it the astral light. It was the light and stars and, sp and spirits of space that were hovering over the earth, near it. They were the strange entrances and exits of principles, dreams, hopes, aspirations, inventions. They were the great different differences the infant born into this world, coming from the, there to here, the aged person departing, going from here to there, but both here and there, always part of one tremendous field of life, a field of life that is not only one great energy, but infinitely diversified, so that every in, uh, thing that exists, the, every grain of sand has its place in the plan of things. And as it is this so, as this is so physically, it is also so mentally and emotionally. Therefore, the cultivation of our hearts and minds, the regeneration of our attitudes, the increase of faith, all these things have to start with a dream or with a fantasy. But if the fantasy is true, for uh, experience builds a solid foundation under it. If the fantasy is not true, it will fade away and leave us disillusioned. But the greatest dreams we have are the true dreams, and the true dreams are the ones which will never fail. So in one way or another, we live in this world of dreams, of drifts, of shadows, but we also have within ourselves the power to use all of the resources of life. Within our own natures have been placed little seeds which can possibly unfold to become worlds. Each human being is a universe in the making. Every human being is an infinite being, forever and forever. But this infinite being is forever growing and unfolding. As it grows, joy and wisdom increase. As it stubbornly clings to its mistakes, it has heartaches. But either heartaches or joys, the end is inevitable. We're going to accomplish what is necessary. And when we do that, the invisible world will become a beautiful blanket to protect us and a wonderful light and a wonderful artistry. And we will see the whole universe as a magnificent creation of infinite wisdom and infinite love. Only as we get to this, our own little problems fade away. And the energies with which we are endowed are the energies by which these dreams can be made to come true. And they are also the fields of energies where these dreams were born. And all together it makes a rather nice little package when we get around to it. Thank you. Okay, everyone, we are back. Wow. That was an absolutely incredible lecture from Manly P. Hall about magic specifically. And unfortunately, with the amount of lectures that he had given in his lifetime and 
the type of technology that was available to record those lectures varied throughout the decades. And it seems that this incredible lecture was recorded in a way that uh, it degraded. It got degraded. So it's rough. I'm going to try to clean it up a little bit in post-production myself. I often do that for some of the lectures that are so bad, fidelity-wise, that they're almost unlistenable. So I do have some audio engineering skills. So I do clean it up occasionally. I might have to do this so the one that you hear might not be as bad as the one that me and Bryn listen to. But incredible lecture. It's worth it. It's worth the fight. It's like speaking from another dimension. It was like speaking through the cloud of ethereal energy that he talked about because really the magic that he was talking about was all related to magnetic fields. The pursuit of understanding of the concepts that he said were behind the scenes of life are rooted in interfacing and understanding those magnetic fields, those energetic magnetic fields that apply to certain aspects of life and reality that may be outside of our normal scope of perception and understanding. That was huge because when people talk about magic, it always conjures up, <laughs> it always conjures up this very abstract concept, almost unreal. But when you put it in the terms of energetic magnetic fields and the ability to interface and manipulate them, then it really starts to shift the understanding and you start to grasp it a little bit. Bryn, what are your thoughts? Yes, he talked about those magnetic fields attaching and then perfectly fitting with the person who is using them or who is who is transmuting them. That was really interesting to think about. Um, and then the consequences of the use of those magnetic fields or energies, depending on uh, the mind and spirit of the person. So that was fascinating. The whole lecture was amazing. I think I have like four pages of just quotes. Like there's so many quotes that I'm like, oh God, this could be a beautiful book title or something. Like he's just got uh, such density of language and the speed at which he spits it all out is pretty incredible. And deep diversification of knowledge. His knowledge well just goes all the way. The bucket keeps coming up every time you send it down. That's why we cover Manly P. Hall more than any other lecturer on these lecture episodes. And what he was talking about, which I also thought was interesting, was the astral light field being the primary source of magic for the individual. And it could be funneled or channeled into black magic or white magic, depending on the intentions of the user. But the field itself is there white magic. He was saying being unselfish use of the energy field, black magic being completely selfish use of the energy field. But I know that there's even gray areas in there. That's probably where that term comes from. There's a lot of grayness because if you use those energies to do something for yourself, not in a consumptive or materialistic way, but just 
in a way to help yourself move forward in life and then you're helping others, would that be considered a gray area? I'm not sure. But a lot of really good information relating to these things, it's so powerful because the root of a lot of people's suffering, he's saying, and even addiction is the poisoning of these fields of energy. So you have these energy fields. They exist in the ethereal plane, in the imaginary plane, you could say, like the place of potential. And then something happens and they get corrupted somehow. There's some poisoning of that and the field itself becomes an addictive energy pattern. It's propagating an addiction. I thought that was so fascinating. I, When he was talking about that with addiction, that the person who is dealing with that issue is not only dealing with the physical drug or even with the habit, which is the worst part he was talking about, but that you're dealing with that energy. It's like this energetic vampire that's coming from, you know, all the other people that were addicts or just that, that force itself. And that's a very powerful way to look at it for sure. Yes. It's incorporating information that's coming from those astral dimensions. It's the astral perspective. Honestly, if you're looking at it from that way, you're taking in that information. It's all energy fields. Science will tell you that people that worship science as a religion, science will tell you that everything's energy. So it's all energy fields, including spiritual situations. Obviously spiritual situations are energetic. I mean, we are energetic light beings, matters, energy. It's all energy. But in getting back to what he was talking about in relation to magic, the history of humanity's first leaps into the magical world were incredible. You never really hear anything about that because it is such abstract knowledge, but that's why Manly P. Hall is amazing. He's the king of abstract, really rare, almost lost knowledge. And it was humanity becoming sensitive to these energy fields and trying to interact with it and then finding that it could be manipulated, not in a negative way, but interfaced with and controlled with mental energy. That's the root of magic. Right. And he gives the history of why the symbols, why the relics, why the fetishes that um, the human finding the power in that magnetic energy and then fusing it with himself in order to create something that's greater than those two pieces. I um, something I wrote down that he said when he talks about everything as a being and that's a concept that a lot of thinkers and seers talk about, but he's attaching so much more to it. He's talking about the energies being beings, the feelings being beings, the moods being beings, and that then we attach an energy onto something, it creates a being. And the the weight of that is intense, just thinking about the entire world and every single person and all of their thought forms that they're creating. Um, he said that when he was speaking about negative energies and wanting to change them, that we need to stop trying to force change them or to fix them, but rather we need to outgrow them. And that 
those things only go away when we send them away by creating new bodies for them and that then they become donations to the new world. And that was just a really poignant piece for me. <laughs> like that's, <laughs> it's a very powerful perspective. We say that word a lot with Manly P hall. He was obviously some star seed or some ethereal being manifested as a human in this life. His story is absolutely powerful and amazing in itself. Just he had the ability to be able to tap into that etheric. Akashic record type situation. Right? right. It's like he could just pull it off the shelf like it was right there in front of him. It, it, what he talks about being invisible didn't seem quite so invisible to him. <laughs> and he seemed like the type of person where if he read something one time, it stuck. Like, And then he was able to aggregate all that and intertwine everything and cross reference all of that within his own mind. And one thing that really stood out to me was his descriptions of all the different layers of the energy bodies and how they interface with the material being, including the soul. I thought that was incredible. Really, we could go on for hours and hours about just this episode because if you understand what he's saying and you can process the information, there's a lot going on here. And if you want to learn more about magic, if you want to learn more about how it interfaces with the astral dimension in a very practical way, it seems to be all right here in this lecture. Yeah, he said some really beautiful things too. Can I just say a couple quotes here? Heaven is not somewhere above. Heaven is in the upper realms of ourselves. Isn't that so beautiful? Yeah, I thought that was really cool as well. I wrote that down. In my notes, because <laughs> it is accurate. There's a microcosm, macrocosm effect when it comes to everything. And that's how he started the lecture was the fact that with the information about how humans originally in our earlier times saw the inner aspects of ourselves and our rhythms and our mechanics as a complete reflection of the rhythms and mechanics of the universe and so it is that way yes the higher ethereal realms everything that we talk about those astral places they're all within us we're little universes ourselves which is another mind-blowing concept <laughs> we could go on about that yeah i really appreciate his attention to the earth being a living sentient being and every single piece of the earth from the weather to the tiny stone having its own energy its own emotion its own life force and i wish that was more well recognized today i know there are some some people who are re-pioneering that um, such as the gaia movement and others but it's if we all learn that and can you imagine if the kindergartners learned that, that would be a whole, I feel like we'd already be on a whole other planet. We are on a whole other planet. Think, <laughs> well, yes, that's true. <laughs> I think that if we did integrate all of this high frequency information early on in human children's development, there would be an incredible reward. There'd be a big payoff there. And one more thing I really want to bring up is that he pointed out that he pointed out that behind the physical world is stratified energy, meaning straight lines like grid pattern, graphic 
energy currents. What dimension is that in? Where is that? Who designed that? I think we already know who. I'm just, you know, throwing that out there. It exists, and that's the type of energy that you utilize when you take a hold of your magical self and develop that. Let's all become white magicians. If you haven't yet, if you're a listener and you are a white magician, awesome. But let's all do that. Let's think about our choices, how we interact with energy itself, how we transmit energy to other people via our behaviors and interactions. Let's all be white magicians and utilize that energy to manifest the new earth and just manifest a better life for ourselves so we can serve others in a greater capacity. What do you think, Bryn? Do you have any final notes here? I'm going to have to say I agree with that. And just one final thing that I wrote down that's really beautiful is the true dreams are the ones that will never fail. We have the power to use the reserves of life, the seeds within us that can unfold every human, a universe. The invisible world will become a blanket to protect us and our problems will fade away. There you go. Just tap in people. That was beautiful in itself. Well, thank you listener for listening to this very rare and thankfully preserved lecture by Mr. Manly P. Hall. And thank you, Bryn Anderson of Vinyl Force Herbs, vinylforceherbs.com, for being here. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. You realize that was your name? Bryn Anderson of Vinyl Force Herbs, <laughs> vinylforceherbs.com. It's like a really long. That's my whole name, first, middle, last, you know, four last the driver's names. driver's <laughs> license office is not very happy with you when you yeah. show up. No, but she's here. I thank you for listening again to another epic lecture. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Okay. All right, people. Well, we logged another one. And I hope you learned as much as I did from this lecture. This really expanded my consciousness. This really expanded my understanding and thinking around magic itself. I read a lot of books and the guests and the other lectures. Look, people, I've been studying all of this stuff for decades now, but I'm still learning, especially when I listen to Manly P. Hall. Yeah, and there's always benefit in listening again. You probably will hear things the second, third, fourth, fifth time that you didn't hear the first, second, third time. Exactly. So listen to this episode thousands of times. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Okay, well, we will see you next week. Midnight on Earth.